The scripture reading for today is Luke 7, 11 through 15. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Can everyone hear? Okay, my name is Stan Dial, and it's my privilege to share God's word with you today. And uh, I am one of the members of the preaching cohort, and so we're grateful to be here. Um, this particular passage of scripture really gets to me because in uh, one of the curious ways we get to see God himself reveal his heart for us and for hurting people. And what we want to see is let him teach us about him being the good news for hurting people. Um, Jesus and his disciples were actually traveling from another town when this took place. That was Capernaum. And there at Capernaum, Jesus healed the servant of a centurion. And that was in a kind of an interesting way because that healing was almost kind of like a remote control healing. The servant really wasn't there. And Jesus told the centurion, go home, you know, after the centurion exhibited faith in Jesus that Jesus himself said was greater than any faith that he encountered in all of Israel, which was, you know, quite a remarkable statement. So they were traveling from Compertian to Nain, which is a small village in Lower Galilee, approximately nine miles, eight and a half miles south of Nazareth. And as Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd of followers that at this time were following him to see what was going to happen next, um, or some were actually going to listen and really were hearing God's word from the Lord, they encounter a funeral and a very painful funeral. Because the deceased was a young man, not an older person or someone suffering from a major disease. And the deceased was the son, the only son of his mother, and his mother was a widow. Now, arguably, the son in this situation was probably the breadwinner. So his death, left the mother 
in absolutely desperate straits. Recall, brothers and sisters, that we're talking now about first century Palestine. There's no special safety net for people in that time, in that country, especially for widows, and widows like this uh, lady who had lost her husband and her son. She will either have to beg, she'll have to try to live with relatives, if that's even possible. She may even have to prostitute herself or do all three merely to survive. Now, unlike the situation in Capernaum, Jesus is now running into a situation involving death. Okay, which is the irrevocable final outcome of the temporal life we live now as a result of the curse on Adam from Adam's sin. The other thing that's interesting in this narrative is that Jesus actually goes up and touches the beer. Now, from what little I can uh, gotten from research, there seems to be a question as to whether or not Jesus might have made himself ceremonially unclean by doing that. I don't know, but I would submit that most, if not all, of the religious leaders of that time, especially the Pharisees, probably wouldn't have gone even close for some fear of doing that. Jesus, however, was not afraid to go right into the mess, whether or not it made him ceremonially unclean. Also, he seems instinctively, fam, instinctively drawn into the widow's situation of desperation and despair. Perceiving the situation in all of its gravity, the Lord Jesus has compassion on the widow, has compassion now, the original Koine Greek word for compassion is splanknisomai. Now, this is not going to be a moody class on New Testament Greek. But it does help sometimes to get under the skin of some of the words that are translated in English because there can be sort of richer meanings, and splanknisomai is one of those words. It means to be moved to the, in the inward parts, literally to be moved to one's bowels because the bowels were felt to be the seat of emotion and feeling. And Jesus was moved to his bowels, if you will, with empathy and pity for this widow. He was moved very deeply just upon seeing her and perceiving her situation. The word splanknisomai for compassion is used about 12 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Either, and they're always used in reference to Jesus. It's either that the Lord is having or feeling compassion, or someone, <coughs> excuse me, asks the Lord to have compassion, or Jesus uses it to describe someone having compassion in, his, in one of his parables. He uses it, for example, 
to describe a father who sees a long way off a prodigal son coming back and he is moved with compassion and discarding any paternal dignity runs towards that son and embraces him. I believe that Jesus' use of splanchnisomai to describe the deep emotions of that father in the parable suggests strongly that the triune God that we serve and trust and believe in feels the same depth and intensity of compassion towards any of his children when they are in desperate need. Compassion is God's natural, instinctive, essential response towards us when we are in deep distress and despair. It's his character. So it should come as no surprise to see the heart of Jesus, God in the flesh, God in human form, consumed with compassion when he encounters a terminal, unlooked-for suffering from a nameless widow in a harsh and fallen world. Out of his bowels of compassion, in an act of pure spirit-driven kindness, Foreshadowing, perhaps, his own resurrection, the Lord Jesus engages death and defeats it right there, raises the dead son, and gives him back to his mother. One wonders, too, perhaps, if some of that compassion that the Lord felt might have been driven by the fact that soon his own mother would lose her son in a horrifying and gruesome execution that in itself will become history's supreme demonstration of splanchnisomai for a hostile and undeserving humanity. In this narrative, this miracle that sometimes flies under the radar screen because we look at other miracles, I believe God shows us and tells his good news to the widow in person. He does it personally. He shows her that he himself, Jesus the Messiah, is the good news. Because wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection, there is life, and there is hope. The last shall be first, the lost found, the dead raised to life. Praise the Lord. Now, Jesus' raising of the widow's dead son is indeed a bona fide miracle, but what makes miracles miracles is that they're rare. God does not do miracles, even for his loved ones, all that often. And Jesus kind of touches on that when he talks to uh, worshipers in a synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth. He says, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, 
to a woman who was a widow, which is interesting because his raising the dead son in Nain kind of recalls and echoes that miracle that Elijah did. (coughs) God does not promise us irrevocably to do the big miracle most of the time. Now, does that mean that it's wrong to pray for a miracle in times of deep distress or crisis, or that we shouldn't waste God's time to pray for a miracle when we need one? Of course not. Of course not. We are right to. We are encouraged by God himself throughout Scripture to pray for relief, to pray for deliverance, for to pray even for the miracle freely and expectantly to make our needs known to the Lord. For example, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are but without sin. Let us therefore boldly come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, unmerited favor, and help, and find this grace in time of need. Jesus himself gave another parable of a widow and an unjust judge in Luke 18 to teach his disciples to always pray and not give up. That coming to the Lord, that confidence, that faith in him honors him. It honors him, and when we pray like that, it changes us. He makes us more like himself. It's just that God is sovereign, and his sovereignty covers his miracle-making and his prayer-answering. God reserves the right to do the miracle or not to answer the prayer or not, which is in itself an answer, but it's based on his goodness, his infinite wisdom, his omniscience, and his eternal perspective. We kind of get a little glimpse of that in the latter part of the chapter of 11 in the book of Hebrews, the famous Heroes of the Faith chapter, and the passage, I'm going to quote, kind of begins upbeat, In a way, we all wish life was like all the time in this crazy fallen world. For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness, becoming mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. Amen. Praise the Lord. But some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and ghost, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world 
was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens, in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They did not receive relief if they prayed for it. These heroes uh, did not receive those things in this life, and their lives were anything. Trust me, they were anything but an example, an exemplar of the comfort and ease that many of us seek, that I seek. But what they did receive, what they did have, which made all the difference in the world, was God himself. Particularly in times of dire affliction and distress, the Lord promises us himself unconditionally and unreservedly. Like the grieving widow from Nain, like the suffering world-unworthy heroes we just talked about, like the 12 apostles, this same Jesus, the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is with us. He is with us in our deepest anguish, heartache, and despair. And what's more, he will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. As we've seen from Pastor Mark's preaching in the past few months in the Psalms, they exude expressions of the joy of the Lord, even in the midst of despair and distress. David writes, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known, it's almost like you have cared to come down and know the distress of my soul. You've condescended to come down, engage with me, and know what's breaking my heart. Another place, David says, you do see trouble and grief, mischief and vexation. To look at it as sort of a celestial scientist watching lab rats, know that you may take it into your hands. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. How many of us have been crushed in spirit at various times in different situations? And he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Yes, brothers and sisters, family at the painted door, the Lord Jesus Christ is the good news, and he is the good news to the hurting. He is the good news to us even unto death because he is the destroyer of death. And this is the Jesus, fam, that is with us. In another situation, speaking to grieving sisters, uh, over the death of a, f- a friend of Jesus at the site of the grave when the sister tells him, I know that I will see my brother in the resurrection. 
you can almost see Jesus embracing her by the shoulders, turning her to him and looking her deeply and straight in the eyes and telling her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do I believe it? Pastor Mark, in sermons in the past, has shared that God is sweeping us up into his life, into his own. He, in effect, is writing the story of our lives. And he uses all the pieces, good and bad, pretty and ugly, smooth and jagged. And this recalls to me a story I encountered in a book by Philip Yancey, the noted Christian author, Seeking for the Invisible God. It's a beautiful story. It won't take long. It's about a unique stained glass window in the Winchester Cathedral in England. And it's sort of a window out of time, as it were. And this particular window, Philip says, neither tells a Bible story nor memorializes a saint. And its kaleidoscope of colors has a peculiarly modern design, as if Marc Chagall had time-traveled back into the 17th century to install it. The window is a relic from a violent time when troops from Oliver Cromwell's army used iron bars to shatter, to shatter the cathedral's ancient windows and break up its statuary. The troops left the ground outside littered with fragments of glass, which the people of the town picked up and stored until the time of frenzy had passed. Years later, a cathedral worker volunteered for the difficult job of reinstalling that window. High on a scaffold above the nave, the workmen assembled the pieces into an abstraction of color. It resembled nothing in Europe at that time. And even today, it seems oddly out of place. And yet, no one can deny that the reconstructed bits of glass form a work of astounding beauty, a work of art. The play of light coming from the sun, clouds filtering through the window, illumine the cathedral into a constantly changing mosaic of color. That illustration of redemption and restoration speaks to me, Philip says, with a personal message of hope. Jesus, our Messiah, the Messiah, is our resurrection, our life, and our hope. He takes the broken fragments of our lives in desperate situations and fashions them into a glorious, eternal masterpiece of his creation. And he will return 
one day. To be with his own. To visibly be with us forever. He will dwell with us. And we will be his people. And God himself will be with us and be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises and that you are with us. You know, there is truly heaven on earth when you are in our lives, even when it seems everything is falling apart. You are there. You are caring. You are upholding us. And one day, though we see you today dimly as through a glass, because of your love and grace and mercy, we will see you face to face. In your precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen.